Um, and we are uh, continuing in this series. And so um, one, of the, one of the big challenges for me, and I shared at the beginning of the service about doing announcements before the message, is making that transition from sharing all the housekeeping stuff into the scriptures. We want to try to keep our focus um, on the scriptures. So at the end of the service, if you miss the announcements that, are, that we're scrolling, they'll come back up. They'll be running um, for a few minutes after service. You can catch uh, those things that are going on. But right now what I want to do is I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. And we are going to get into uh, the book of 1 Kings and continue talking about the house of David and its significance in Scripture. So join, me with, it, join with me in a word of prayer. Creator of all things. Sovereign over all kingdoms and all of the earth. You have chosen to reveal yourself to us in the written word. Confirmed by your Holy Spirit. Personified in the, in the man, Jesus Christ. Who is both fully man and fully God. As we come to your written words, may they show us the living word. That we might know how to follow him better, love you and each other better, manage and deal with the stumbling and frustrations and celebrations and joys and everything in between of our lives as your church. May we know your grace. May we know our hope in you. And may we know what you have called us to do and that we have the power to do it. We pray this, Father God, in the name of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings in chapter 15. Uh, We've been reflecting on... The House of David, this um, Iron Age kingdom um, founded by David around 1000 BC that really all of Western history and society is affected by this little kingdom and this seemingly insignificant marginal dynasty that rules a, a, a kingdom rarely bigger than um, really southern New Hampshire for about 400 years and yet has this tremendous influence, um, not only uh, not political as much as um, Jesus being descended from David and, and so much of the scriptures hanging on him. So as we get into the transition from uh, David's grandson, Rehoboam, who was a king, became king about 920 uh, AD, um, into his sons, I just want to take a moment and talk about kingship. Now, we, last year, um, Great Britain got a new king. I mean, he was used. They got him at a discount. Um, but they did get a new king, right? So Charles III... 
which if ever there was a king, if you know anything about Charles I and Charles II, if ever there was a king that should have changed his name when he became king, Charles is one of them. They, their lives did not end well. Um, but um, but uh, they got a new king, and we tend to think of kingship in that kind of medieval, you know, guy in a big uh, fur coat and a giant crown on his head and you know all the stuff that goes you know the king arthur kind of kings you know um but that's not how iron age kingship worked uh king kings first of all kingdoms were much smaller and we've talked about this uh jerusalem not a big city um at this time i mean today metropolitan jerusalem is about 1.5 million people um, back in this period, you're talking maybe 20,000 people, 15, 20,000 people. Um, small um, mountaintop uh, fortress that's the kingdom. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about what kingship was like um, in this period. So uh, basically there were two ways that you could be a king in the ancient Near East. Uh, and we're talking about the Iron Age, so around 1200 B.C. going forward. The first was you could be an Egyptian-style king. And Egyptian-style kings claimed to be gods. That's an easy way to keep people from questioning your decisions. Um, the Egyptians believed that they were the Egyptian pharaoh. The pharaoh means house, uh, the great house. That the pharaoh was literally a... a incarnation uh, a and continually incarnated uh, presence of Osiris and Horus, um, that he was Omon-Ra, he was the, the morning sun. If you watch Ten Commandments, Yul Brenner, um, the greatest pharaoh to ever appear on TV, um, you know, I am the morning star, right? Um, so let it be written, so let it be done. This idea, this idea was that they were the voice of the gods and there was no questioning the voice of the god. So you could be an Egyptian-style king. Or you could be an Assyrian-style king, a Mesopotamian-style king. So um, Egypt is down uh, northeast corner of Africa. Mesopotamia, Greek word, which means in between the rivers. Um, between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, the, the cradle of civilization, the fertile crescent. Assyrian kings believed that they were the representatives of the gods, usually the representative of Marduk or Nabus or one of the, the great gods of their societies, Asher. Um, and they were they actually used the word the, the vicar, um, what we would translate as vicar, the representative, the the stand-in for the gods. And and so the Assyrians basically believed that um, their king their emperor, whatever you want to call him, their shah, their whatever, um, that their king was basically, he was a representative of God. And so while he might make mistakes, you were not to raise a voice against him because he was God's chosen representative. And this is kind of the way um, that the Roman kind of thinking of, of Caesars and things became. What's fascinating about the house of Israel is that they have a completely different approach to kingship. Uh, it, and we would not know about it if it weren't for the scriptures, and yet it, it tremendously it influenced the thinking of much of Western culture. And it was that the king was chosen by God, but he was not chosen in isolation. 
So while the house of David passed their rule from father to son, and and continually you get this line that so-and-so died and he slept with his fathers, which was a, a poetic way of saying we gather up his bones and we buried him with all of his ancestors. Um, and then so-and-so, his son, reigned in his stead. Well, the idea was that that son carried on this succession. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the oldest son. It was the chosen son, the selected son. Um, but he would just carry on his role as a king because God had appointed the house of David to rule. So it just was going to pass along. But the house of David did not rule in isolation. The house of David always had a check. They had a balance. There was always one group of the house of Israel, or the house of Judah, that was able to raise their voice against the king when the king violated the will of God. And those were the Navim, the prophets, the way that we translate it today. We call them prophets. Now, when you think of prophecy, you think of weird visuals and Daniel and Revelation and the book of Ezekiel, the one book that even seminary professors don't read. Um, you, you think of that kind of prophets. But a prophet actually had a very real, very practical job. And we see it all through Samuel and Kings. Whenever a king makes a decision that is contrary to the will of God, a prophet is given the mission to go and speak to that king and say, no, this is what God wants. And the king has the difficult decision, do I choose to follow what I think is best or to follow the voice of God? And there are actually multiple prophets. When you read through Samuel and Kings, you'll see that there are many prophets. And some kings like to just accumulate prophets. They just pile them up. That way they could outvote the ones that disagreed with them. Um, we see that with uh, in the north uh, with Omri and, and Ahab. And you can read about that in First Kings. where They have hundreds of prophets that work for them. And then there's always this lone voice saying, no, this is what God wants. And what's interesting is that the prophets, you were not allowed to touch them. They were, they were God's special chosen voice. They, they were called to a responsibility that in many ways was equal to or greater than the voice of the king. So you had this interesting situation where a human authority was checked by the word of God. And this is still true in the church. The voices of men and women in authority in the church must always be subordinated to the word of God. You say, well, this is what we should do. What do the scriptures say? Because we must listen to the prophets and apostles before we listen to you. Leaders love it when you say that kind of stuff. Um, But that's the reality. So in chapter 15 of 1 Kings, we have the the handoff from Rehoboam to two of his sons. Now they're called, uh, you know, the second one's going to be called the son of the first one. That's because that's how you describe succession. So don't get too tied up on that. But now in the 18th year of the king Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abiyam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ma'aka, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, 
setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him, that the Lord commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Just file that verse along. We're going to come back to that. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abiyam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? This is not, by the way, the book of Chronicles that we have. All right, It's a different, um, different book. We don't have it. And there was war between Abiyam and Jeroboam. And Abiyam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned forty-one years, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. All right, that's how we know these guys were brothers, because they share a mom. Pretty straightforward. That's a surefire way of knowing your brothers. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land. He removed all the idols that his father had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being uh, queen mother. The Hebrew word is Gebirah. Um, it means the great woman, the powerful woman. Um, because she had made an abominable image for Asherah, that's Canaanite god. And Asa, uh, Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Now, read that verse again. The high places were not taken away. These are cultic sites where people worship whatever God they feel like in their backyard. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts and silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all their days. So Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasuries, uh, treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, or king of Aram is actually the word there, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant be- between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered them, conquered Ion, Don, Abel-Beth Ma'akah. Um, you notice a name that seems familiar in that name. That's His mother's name is in that city. Um, and all Kinaroth, with all the land of Naphtali, and when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had build, been building. And with them King Asa built Geva of Benjamin and Mizpah. And now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Judah? But in his old age... He was diseased in his feet. He had gout. Uh, wow. And just a detail. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, 
reigned in his place. Now we'll talk about Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, it's how most people um, pronounce it. Um, but we have two kings, two brothers. And what's, what's different about their situation? Nothing. They are in the exact same situation. The first one, Abiyam, he only reigns for three years. There's not a whole lot you can do in three years. You say, you haven't met my kid. Trust me, there's not a whole lot of like permanent change that can happen in three years if you're the king. Um, and Abiyam takes over Rehoboam, their father, and he just says, we'll just maintain the status quo. We're just going to keep worshiping Canaanite gods. We're going to keep our alliances with the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, we're gonna, we want to we want to keep everything just the way it is. And he lasts for three years, and then his brother Asa, same father, same mother, same situation, yet he chooses a completely different path. He says, no, that's not what we're going to do. Um, we're going to get rid of all of this. In fact, mom, your job is done. Retire, be happy, live in the back, back of the house. Um, I'm going to take over from here. Now, the, the Gevirah, by the way, we're going we're to talk about the, the queen mothers um, in a later week in this series. But um, they basically, if they appear, that usually means they have a tremendous amount of power and authority over their sons. That they're really ruling through their sons. That's just the way um, Kings presents them. Um, he tells her to go, and he makes he reforms an alliance to deal with the Northern Kingdom, which is a we'll talk about the Northern Kingdom at some point. We've talked about them before. So here's the question: What makes a good king? in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. We might think what makes a good king is um, that he does the, the right stuff. And yet we encounter, through the book of Kings, we'll encounter someone named Yoash, or Yahoash, or Joash. It's usually how we pronounce it. By the way, Hebrew does not have a J sound. So anytime you see a J, it's pronounced with a Y. So I'll just let you know about that. That's why I pronounce things. You're like, that's a J. Is he just weird? Um, uh, the, um, but Yoash, he will have all the opportunity in the world to make the right decisions. He will make some good decisions, but he, the reality is he's actually making those decisions because of an influential person, Yehoiada the king, and as soon as Yehoi, or Yehoiada the priest, and as soon as Yehoiada dies, Yoash just takes the kingdom to the pits. So it's not about making the right choices. I mean, you and I all know people who might be horrible people, but manage to succeed. I mean, so making the right choices in situations, that doesn't necessarily make you a good king. It's not about being the strongest. If Asa had been the stronger of the two brothers, Rehoboam would have made him king. Asa is actually a second son. Uh, second sons spend most of their life, uh, well, uh, uh, What's the name of the two princes, Charles's kids? William and... What is his name? Harry. Harry. I heard like eight names. They're like, Edward, Bill, John! All right, Harry, Harry wrote a book called Spare, right? Like he's the backup. Like, like he's like fifth in line, right? Second sons, that's what they do. They, they, hey, my dad's, my dad's the king. My brother's going to take over. I'm just going to party the rest of my life, 
All right, that's basically what second sons did in this period. So Asa winds up being king. For something happens, something happens to Abiyam. He only lasts three years. We don't know why he dies. Maybe he got a disease. Maybe he died in battle. Um, you know, but he dies, and Asa takes over, and he's going to lead. Right. So, what makes a good king? Over and over again in First Kings and Second Kings, First Kings three fourteen, eight twenty five, nine four, eleven thirty three. You can keep reading. The statement that is constantly made is not he was a good king because he did all the good things. He was a good king because he won the victories. He was a good king because he was smart, handsome, and tall. He was a good king because he paid off the right people. He was a good king because he wrote the book. Over and over we get, um, he was a good king because he walked before God like his father David. Now, we look at that and we go, okay, so he was like David. That's not what it says. It says he walked before God like his father David. He walked as his father David walked, right? So when we read about Asa all the way at the beginning of this of this narrative about him, right? What do we see about him? All right. Um, Asa, in verse 11, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his David, his father, had done. And then later kings, it's he walked, he walked, he walked, he walked, he did, he walked, he did, he walked. Now, for us, um, I heard a statistic that can't possibly be right, that the average American walks less than half a mile in a day. Is that right? It doesn't, I mean, I walk more than half a mile just going up and down the stairs because I keep forgetting why I was downstairs. I mean, like, like, I don't know. Anyway, I read this statistic and I'm like, this statistic can't be right. But we don't walk as much as these guys walked. Uh, on average, a person in the Iron Age probably walked 10 to 15 miles a day. Just an average day. That was what they did. Because you think about it. Um, we get in our cars to drive to our neighbor's house three, three doors down. Um, we get in our cars to go to the grocery store. We get in our cars again because we forgot something that we were supposed to get at the grocery store. Um, we get in our cars to drive to work, which, by the way, we work miles and miles and miles away. You can't live without a car in our, in our society. Uh, this week we drove, uh, I took my mom and my, and my wife and the dogs because everywhere we go, the dogs go with us. Um, and they're not here. Don't worry about it. Uh, but we, uh, we took, we drove up to Pillsbury State Park, which is in Washington. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Washington. If you've been to Washington, New Hampshire, I can almost guarantee you've never been to East Washington. Um, East Washington is like two buildings and a pond. It, it's a great place to drop a body. That's all I'm saying. Um, we were, we were, we drove, we drove up these. Not that I've ever done that. Um, we we drove up these dark, uh, these uh, dark paths through dirt roads. We went to old Mount Vernon. I didn't even know there was an old Mount Vernon. Like we were, we were in the boonies and we're driving around and we're looking and you know driving through and they're all forest and woods. And then you realize that 150, 200 years ago, this was all farms. It's all trees now because all the farmers moved to Iowa. But um, they did, uh, and and uh, and you know they they all the farms got shrank and got smaller and smaller. But back in the day, this was all farmland, right? 
And you sit there, you're like, oh my goodness, all this was farmland. It was farmed and cleared out. The reason that the town centers tend to be on top of hills like in Mount Vernon is because that's how you you secure yourself if the Native Americans come and try to take back the land that you took without asking them. Um, You know, all these different things that are going on. So it's a different world, but you walked everywhere. That was what you did. I mean, if you were lucky, you had a horse to pull your plow. But generally, um, in their society, you walked. Horses were like horses were like 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 Ferraris in these days. Not everybody had a horse. You know, we tend to think of the ancient world like the Wild West, where everybody's got a horse and a mule. Um, to walk, to walk in their world is a very different kind of idea. It's one of the most important images in the Old Testament of a godly life: walking. God says to Abraham, "Walk before me," and be holy. See, and, and a couple of things you want to write some stuff down. This is, this is some stuff. Walking before the Lord is not about getting somewhere. It's not about, well, I'm just, I'm, you know, looking for a city. If you don't know if you've ever heard the crazy southern gospel song, where I'll never die. Um, and then it's got a bunch of untheological stuff after that. Um, it's not about getting somewhere, right? We all we all think now. Hebrews actually talks about Abraham. It says that Abraham he looked for a city whose author and, found, and founder was was God, um, and yet he never found it. He just kept walking. It, it wasn't about getting somewhere. It was about a providing. It's about living. It isn't about a straight line, right? Which so often we think of our spiritual lives and our journeys with God, and we go like, God, just give me a straight line. Just give me an A, B, subpoint one, subpoint two, um, marked section C, highlight to the left in case I want it, but not necessary, so I can move through the process. This is what my spiritual life is. It's, it's just, I just want a straight line. Well, anybody that's ever walked in nature know that, knows that walking is not straight lines. Bill Bryson tells a story um, in um, a book, one of my favorite books, A Walk, Walk in the Woods. He talks about moving to Hanover, New Hampshire, and having a neighbor who uh, lived two miles from the gym, or one mile from the gym, who would get in her car and drive to the gym to walk two miles on the treadmill. <laughs> and Bill said to his neighbor, why don't you just walk to the gym and then walk back? And she said to him, because the treadmill is flat. See, we human beings, we like flat paths, easy paths. We don't like the challenges of walking in the real world. We like a a clear road, an easy road, a a, a well-articulated journey. We like to know if we're walking, we're going to walk two miles or four miles, and we know exactly where we're going to be, and we have apps on our phones that tell us how to do it. Before that, we used to draw pictures on maps. We like having waypoints. We like have those little mile markers. If you're like me and you're on a long road trip, you're watching those mile markers go by, and you're like, only 87 miles left of Connecticut... Only 85.9 miles left of Connecticut. Um, we like that. But for them, walking involved detours and stumbling and struggling. That's all part of walking. Moving is sometimes um, so hard for us because every time we, read a, we, we kind of stumble or fall, we're like, oh no, I'm off the path. I've stopped. Look at, look at the description here. 
of David. Remember, he was like David his father. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord like David his father. Remember I told you to keep an eye on this way back in uh, verse 5, right? It says um, that, that Abiyam, he, um, uh, uh, it talks about him and it's, it talks about David. And it says, because uh, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life. It's like, see, David was perfect, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. See, David failed. He failed big. Walking is not always about succeeding. Walking with the Lord is not always about being right all the time. It's not about always knowing the, your destination and just striving for it. Walking isn't about wearing the right clothes and equipment. It's, it, walking, isn't about, walking isn't about all of this stuff. Walking isn't about knowing or feeling or being, um, you know, being comfortable with the path. Anyone who's hiked knows what it's like to think you got to the top of a mountain only to realize you're not even remotely close. Walking is about struggling. This kind of walking is about not being able to walk anymore, but still putting one foot in front of the other. This kind of walking is about moving toward what God has for us, even though we know we're going to stumble and fall and struggle. That's what makes a good king. See, God wasn't interested in the perfect king. He was just interested in a king that would keep moving. Keep moving. Now what's really interesting is if you think about who David was, you realize that the template that David had as a king was that he was a shepherd. And when a shepherd is walking, is the walk for him? Or is it for those who are following him? That the journey, what makes a good king is keep moving Keep going forward, acknowledging our mistakes, dealing with the problems because there are others who are following us. They're looking for us to lead the path. They're looking for us to take them to the place that they can walk on their own. I think so often we look at, we talk about my spiritual walk and all we're talking about is me having a spiritual high. Reading my devotions and learning, reading a devotional book and, and feeling, you know, challenged or encouraged or whatever. But it ends at the edge of my brain. But our walk is about those who are following us. A king's walk is about those that are following us. It's about being a shepherd. It's about honoring God and moving forward no matter what the path looks like, no matter how often we fall. What makes a good king? What makes a a good leader? And every one of us are shepherds of someone. And if you're not now, you will be. Someone will look to you. And they will ask about the perfection of your life. And they don't know all the times you've stumbled or struggled. And the temptation is to never talk about the stumbling and the falling. To pretend like we're as perfect as other people think we are. When I was a kid, my dad taught me to play basketball. If you've ever met my dad, you know that he is not built for basketball. We had a basketball hoop that he set up. It was about eight feet high. That's not regulation. 
but hobbits. He showed me how to shoot a basketball to the best of his ability. I thought my dad was the greatest basketball player I had ever seen. He was amazing. He got it in almost all the time. He never once let me know. He had no idea what he was doing, and at best, he was terrible. So I copied him. I followed him. I did what he would. When my daughter decided she wanted to shoot a basketball, well, she was under no illusions that I was good at this. It's so easy for us to hide the journey we're on, the walk that we're on from those who are following. But what made you a king after the heart of David was not your perfection. It was that you walked. You say, I'm struggling. I'm having a difficult time with this part or that part of my spiritual journey right now. I'm, I'm, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm dealing with. I, I don't know why I'm not encouraged. I don't know why I read the Bible and nothing happens. I pray and it doesn't work. I'm trying to fix this problem in my life, but I don't seem to have a solution. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if this is right. Just keep putting one step and foot in front of the other. It's about walking. It's about going no matter what happens. The deep spiritual theologian, Rocky Balboa, who was a very distant cousin of mine. Very distant. Rocky Balboa says it's not about being hit. It's about getting hit and getting back up. Just keep going. Keep walking. You say, I've made a mess of things. I need to, I need to just kind of like... Get inside my head and fix all this stuff. You can think just as well walking as you can standing still. Keep moving toward God. You say, but I don't see him. I don't know. I don't experience. I don't know what's happening. You go to the scriptures. You see what he calls you to do. You do it whether you feel like doing it or not. You just keep walking. You say, but I'm not a king. Nope. The Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter says, we are a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood. That we are called to be something bigger than a king. Something greater than a priest. We are called to be Christians. We are called to just walk. You say, it would be so much easier if we didn't have to do all this work but then it wouldn't be walking. It'd be, I mean, he was a good king because he sat in all the ways of, the, of David, his father. He was a good king. He, uh, you know, he slept. He uh, reclined, you know, recline at table, right? Why do you, why do you recline at table? Because the table's like this tall. Um, we always move forward. You say, I, I'm not, I, I don't know what I'm doing. That's okay. There should be somebody ahead of you that you can follow for now until you figure it out. You say, I made mistakes. That's okay. David broke like seven of the commandments in one day with the situation with Bathsheba and Uriah. I mean, covetousness, adultery, murder, lying. And yet, 
The Bible still calls him a man after God's own heart. Just keep walking. It's not an excuse to sin. It's a responsibility to keep moving forward from your sin. Keep walking. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, whoever we are shepherding today, whoever is following us, maybe we don't even know that they're looking to us, help us to help them to see human beings whose hearts are set on you, who stumble and struggle, but just keep going. Lord, this is not about us. This journey is not about what we accomplish. It's about what you have called us to do, to be, to live. May you be glorified in us as the church, here and in, out in the world, as it were. Help us to walk. Walk 